0: Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot .org. You can do this for as little as fifty a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill real. Grateful to have you with us today. I hope you'll like this episode before we get started, I also want to throw out there, I'm living in St. George, Utah now, and we've already put a group together here of Latter-day Saints who are meeting uh, once every three months or so, who are going through this faith transition, this faith deconstruction and reconstruction, and and wanting to get together and and be able to talk these things through with other like-minded individuals. If you fit that kind of a group, if this podcast entertains you, if you see value in talking about the deeper issues of Mormonism, then please, by all means, give me an email at uh, realmormon at gmail.com. Let me know you're interested, and I'll add you to the group. The other thing, too, is now that I'm out here in Utah, I'm happy to to travel around a little bit in and do any firesides or any meetings that people would like to have. We've done several of these already. We've done firesides in Sarnia, Canada. We've done uh, meetings in uh, Nevada, uh, as well as here in southern utah uh, and i'm happy uh, if you know to do an evening fireside on a saturday night say just email me get the conversation started let me know what you're thinking be happy to do it i've done numerous firesides in the past on the topic of grace on the topic of how leaders can better help members who are going through a faith crisis how each of us as members can be better prepared to handle new information when it comes at us And so those types of things, if you're interested, if you're in a position of leadership that you can, you can recommend something like this happen or make something like this happen, just send me an email and uh, we'll get the ball rolling. Uh, Again, appreciate each of you. Today I want to talk about the word church and the way in which we use that word. Because I think, I think as I often talk about in the podcast, we have overstepped, overreached at times, the way the Lord defines things. And, you know, we can certainly go into church history and find times that Joseph thought something of the Book of Mormon or its people. And apologists would now say, hey look, Joseph's just doing the best he can. He, he, you know, overreaches on his understanding of, of what a Lamanite is. He overreaches on his understanding of You know, where the Book of Mormon took place at times. He overreached thinking that the Book of Abraham was absolutely in those facsimiles and in that papyri. And I think that, uh, that kind of overreaching, we have to recognize that that happens quite a bit. I mean, if we are, if we're overreaching on where the Book of Abraham came from, if we're overreaching on why blacks can't hold priesthood, then we certainly ought to allow ourselves to overreach on issues that are much, much less important, at least what maybe seems less important. But I think the word church you're gonna see is a really big one. And I cut this idea recently by listening to Dan Witherspoon and his conversation with John DeLin. These are, these are thoughts that have been running in my head for a while. If you ask people who have had conversations with me in the last year, and they said, hey, what does it mean to you that the church is true? I would give, and can give right now even, a very nuanced answer to that question. But I had never put these thoughts down to make an episode, and it wasn't until I heard Dan Witherspoon saying some of these exact same ideas that I thought, man, that's it. We're onto something here. And so I decided to write these things down and share them with you today. It seems in Scripture that the Savior uses the word church in multiple ways. And I think this becomes obvious as you begin to look at scriptures and begin to look into the phrases that we've read hundreds of times in our lives and begin to see more of what's really going on. The first one I want to talk about is D&C section 10. And we'll use some Old Testament, New Testament scriptures here as well, but I think it's important to set the tone Using scriptures from the restoration and to realize that, that scripture is profitable for all, that all should be reading this. Not just Mormons from the sect of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but rather the scriptures are meant for everyone. DNC 10 verse 67, it says, behold, this is my doctrine, whoso repenteth and cometh unto me the same is my church. So here we see this idea that anyone who is repenting and coming unto Christ, the same is his church. The same is part of his church. That's a whole nother concept than saying those who can have a testimony of the word of wisdom, those who are paying a full tithing, those who have a testimony of Thomas S. Monson as a prophet, or Joseph Smith as a prophet. I mean, that's such a small bucket of people, right? That's 0.2% of the human population. And yet, Moses one thirty-nine, Behold, it is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So we have Moses telling us God's mission statement to bring to pass the immortal, and eternal life of man. And there's this idea that whoso repenteth and cometh unto Christ, the same is of his church. Whoso is changing, making progress, and moving towards the goodness of the Savior is of his church. That's a much more universal concept. And it's not the only place that we find it. Also, to set the tone, we should talk about D&C 49. This is one that Terrell Givens talks about all the time this D and C section 49 where Joseph has this question on the Quakers and God uses this moment as a teaching example to take Joseph aside and say, look, why are you judging the Quakers? Why are you concerning yourselves with whether, whether I'm working with them or not? I'm working with lots of people, Joseph. He says, wherefore I will that all men shall repent for all are under sin except those I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. Consider the ramifications of that. You have Joseph saying, look guys, there are holy men that you don't even know about, who I've reserved unto myself. And I do find it interesting. This is a a, a phrase you're going to have to wrestle with. I'm wrestling with trying to figure out how are there ways to come to understanding of this? He says, I will that all men shall repent, for all are under sin, except those which I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. These holy men who are not under sin, who perhaps don't need to repent. It's a pretty interesting phrase, and to recognize that these guys are outside of the church. That is a whole new concept for the church to be talking about within its ranks, we certainly get that kind of language from Terrell Givens, Richard Bushman, Adam Miller, and others as they talk about the fact that God works with many, many others outside the church. The church certainly hits on this when it talks about the 1978 First Presidency Letter. This, this 1978 First Presidency Letter was sent out on February 15th. In the second paragraph says the great religious leaders of the world, such as Muhammad, Confucius, and the reformers, as well as philosophers, including Socrates, Plato, and others, received a portion of God's light. Moral truths were given to them by God to enlighten whole nations and to bring a higher level of understanding to individuals. But they don't go as far. This this statement doesn't go as far as this D&C 49, where the Savior says, look. I know the normal gospel plan is for people to repent, to be baptized, to receive saving ordinances, to receive the holy ghost, to go to the temple, to you know, keep repenting their entire lives and to come unto me through the church. But D&C 49 says, look, there everyone needs to repent and are under sin except these holy men who I've reserved unto myself who you know not of. These men because obviously the church is on the earth and it's the only church providing the ordinances. Somehow these men on some level are sidestepping that plan that the church has set up as the plan of salvation for all to get back to God. They must receive the ordinances. They must repent. They must have faith. They must be baptized. And yet here is Jesus saying, look, these guys aren't under sin. And he implies that they don't even need to repent, that they are reserved unto Christ. And yet Joseph doesn't know them So it's not like they're already having received the ordinances and in the church. So this becomes kind of tricky when we want to imply that the word church means a specific denomination, a certain set of beliefs that a certain group of people hold as they go to certain buildings. That just doesn't work anymore. Let's move on to, I think, the key scripture of the whole thing, is D&C section 1. In D&C section 1, Joseph, as he's receiving this revelation, he's going through lots of basics of the gospel. For instance, if I were to start in verse uh, 29, And after having received the record of the Nephites, yea, even my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., might have power to translate through the mercy of God, by the power of God, the Book of Mormon. And also... Those, and this is verse 30, and also those to whom the, these commandments were given might have power to lay the foundation of this church and to bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth with which I the Lord am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. Now, My first multiple years through the church, reading this scripture, I took it, hey, speaking collectively unto the LDS church and not to individuals. But as I've read this verse over and over, that just doesn't seem to make sense. And the other thing you could say is, well, Joseph is telling this branch of the church, like, hey, I'm not just speaking to these 22 people. Rather, I'm speaking to the church entirely as far as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But that seems to be odd as well. That seems to be an overreach. Because it seems apparent that in these Doctrine and Covenant sections, that Joseph is addressing the entire church. It seems that the whole section of this D&C is obvious that it's addressing the church generally. And it seems odd that Jesus uses this moment to discern between the collective church and the individual church. Let's read this again. And also those to whom these commandments were given. Now, who were the commandments given? They were given to anyone who's around Joseph. He's talking about basic stuff. They might have the power to lay the foundation of this church, and to bring it forth out of obscurity and out of darkness, the only true and living church, upon the face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking unto the church collectively and not individually. For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance, Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven. What if Jesus is discerning between the collective and individual church because he's trying to make it clear that in this instance, he is saying, look, the only true and living church upon the whole earth, face of the whole earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, are those who I spoke of in D&C 10 who are repenting, And coming unto me. And that those can be anybody in and out of the church. Those can be the holy men that you know not of. Those can be Mohammed, Confucius, and the Reformers. Those can be the founders of the Constitution. Those can be the Nephites. They can be the Lamanites. They can be the Jews. They can be the Gentiles. They can be anybody on the face of this earth who is making progress and heading my direction. They are of my church. Now the Book of Mormon seems to talk about this even further if we turn to First Nephi chapter fourteen. It it needs to be said here that the Book of Mormon in these chapters right here can be quite confusing, and here's why. In another spot, just a chapter away, chapter two away, there's this discussion of the the great and abominable church and the church of God, and the distinction seems to imply that it's very limited. So in fact, let's start there. Just one chapter earlier in First Nephi chapter 13, verse 5. In fact, let's start in verse 3. And he said unto me, These are the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. And it came to pass that I saw among the nations of the Gentiles the formation of a great church, And the angel said unto me, Behold the formation of a church which is most abominable above all other churches, which slayeth the saints of God, yea, and tortureth them, and bindeth them down, and yoketh them with the yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. In verse 6 it says, And it came to pass that I beheld this great and abominable church, and I saw the devil, that he was the founder of it. That seems to speak of a specific organization That was formed. And so in that regard, I can't blame Elder McConkie, though I do say it is overreaching for him to have made the assumption that this must obviously be speaking about the Catholic Church and then to go out and preach that and write about it. That seems to be wrong and unfortunately arrogant, but something that we all do. We all overstep bounds. We all make false assumptions. But this chapter seems to speak to this idea that, that the formation was this specific church. But then we get verse or chapter 14, starting in verse 9. And it came to pass that he said unto me, Look, and behold, that great and abominable church, which is the mother of abominations, whose founder is the devil. And he said unto me, Behold, there are save two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abomination, and she is the whore of all the earth. It becomes clear here, that at least in this instance, if not now running over into the other one, that the Savior is not talking about specific churches. Rather, he's talking about each of us in which direction we face. That there are two churches only and we belong to one or the other. We belong to either progress and heading in the right direction or we belong to stagnancy or rebelliousness and moving the wrong way or standing still. And those, everyone belongs to one of those two churches. That is a universal idea. Some other thoughts. There's the scripture where the savior says to Peter, upon this rock will I build my church. What was that rock? In the, out of the church, we like to, the the Catholic church, for instance, likes to say the rock is Peter. Within our faith, we like to say the rock is the revelation of a prophet. And yet, I think it would be unfair to call Peter the prophet of the church at this point. He's one of the twelve. He's one of, of these witnesses of Christ. But what the savior is saying is this rock is this personal inspiration and manifestation to Peter that Jesus was the Christ. And hence, because of that, Peter was going to spend the rest of his life repenting, working on making progress, heading the right direction, and trying to come unto Christ. Perhaps upon this rock will the Savior build his church, meaning the universal church. Also, Terrell Givens and others have spoken on this idea that we really misunderstand the apostasy. There's a book out, which is titled Standing Apart, Historical Consciousness in the Concept of Apostasy. It's an LDS book written by LDS authors. There have been interviews done by the Maxwell Institute. Uh, Blair Hodges uh, did a wonderful interview with the, the authors of this book to get their perspective. And it talks about the fact, these ideas that, look, if we really look into the historical context of how we've defined, interpreted, and understood the idea of apostasy, we may have overstepped our bounds here. An apostasy may not mean anything like like what Elder Talmadge wrote in The Great Apostasy. Something entirely different may have happened. And the Givens hit on this all the time when they talk about this idea that that Mormonism doesn't need a Plato. Mormonism doesn't need a Mozart. Because there already was a Plato. And there already was a Mozart. That in other words, while we as the church think we have this exclusivity, and hence because we have a monopoly on this upper level of God's inspiration that we should have these super creative geniuses within our church. And the reality is that God is working equally with all of his children. And so we should expect to find intelligent, creative geniuses of even greater magnitude than what are found within the church outside of it. And Brother Givens talks about this idea that when we look at the apostasy, we're going to have to change our framework and realize that That in the book of Revelation, John the Revelator says that the church shall be taken by the Lord out into the wilderness and essentially obscured from the people. And then when Joseph participates in the restoration, he says that this church comes back out of the wilderness. In this idea that that the church always existed, it's our ability to recognize what it means and when we look at the fact that the Book of Mormon and the DNC and other LDS scriptures, if we just open up a little bit, allow us to see that the concept that Mormonism teaches, that really no other Christian denomination teaches, is this, in, this all-encompassing inclusiveness of everyone, right? The only thing we say that everyone has to have are the ordinances, and we just happen to provide them for everyone. Mormonism is a universalist religion. And I think it's just a small hop, step, and a skip to recognize that in the scriptures, Christ defines the church in multiple ways, and that one of those ways is that all who come unto him, all who repent, are of his church. And so while Mormonism certainly can lay claims on priesthood, can lay claims on priesthood offices, and can lay claim on priesthood keys, and as guardians of the saving ordinances, what it doesn't recognize is it just might be one tool in the toolbox. It, it seems to kind of barely grasp on that God is using other people, that other players are in this game, that we're not the only team here, that Pope Francis might very well be called and authorized of God to perform some work within this restoration in the little venture part that he has room to do. We certainly wouldn't take that away from the Reformers. We certainly wouldn't take it away from Christopher Columbus. We certainly wouldn't take it away from the founders of the Constitution. And yet, when we see others outside of our church doing God's work, we say, yeah, sure be good if he was a Mormon. Man, it'd be good if he'd you know, join our church and, and operate under the truth. But maybe the reality is, is that, as Brother Worthland talked about individuals being part of an orchestra, that reality is that everyone out there including different organizations outside of the church, are part of the orchestra. Let's listen to Orson F. Whitney's quote, where he points at this very idea. Orson F. Whitney, former member of the Quorum of the Twelve, said, talking about non-members, said, Perhaps the Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along. They are among its auxiliaries. That's his words, not mine. They are among its auxiliaries and can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. And the same is true of the priesthood and its auxiliaries inside the church. Hence, some are drawn into the fold and receive a testimony of the church, while others remain unconverted for the present. The beauties and glories of the gospel being veiled temporarily from their view for a wise purpose, The Lord will open their eyes in his own due time. Now he continues. That was all him. Now he continues. He says this. He says, God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. The Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. And then he says, he finishes up. He says, again, I say, the Lord's work has need of auxiliaries outside as well as inside to help it along because of their worldly influence which would depart if they connected themselves with the church. Many are kept where they are, where the Lord has placed them and can best use them for the good of all. How beautiful is that? That's the inclusiveness that Mormon doctrine allows. If you just open your mind and heart to it. So you can certainly say, look, man, the church is true in that it, it holds a special part. It it plays a special role. It, it oversees the saving ordinances, but everyone's going to get those in this life or the next. It oversees, you know, the keys of the priesthood, which allow one to, to govern these ordinances and not even govern them. God governs them. The church is simply guardians of them. And once you open up to, Hey, that's the church's role, but that in reality, anyone who is repenting and coming unto Christ is of his church. And then we begin to see this idea that the standards we set, the scriptures seem to speak of a much lower expectation of what it takes to join a church, to join the church. We should hit on this idea of the scriptures that talk about the body of Christ, that maybe maybe in some way we could think of it this way, that, that the cells of the body, every cell is a human being, but that cells associate themselves into certain places under certain sets of beliefs and responsibilities and duties, which make up then the hand or the foot or the eye or the hair, or the heart, or the lungs. And as the scriptures say, the hand cannot tell the foot, we have no need of thee. For all are the body of Christ. We are all the body of Christ. It's like having a box of tools. And the hammer just thinks he is the entire box of tools. But the reality is he is one tool among many. And he might be the one that is used most often. He might be the one that is most important to the job. He might be the one that the master carpenter says, look, If I could only keep one tool, I would take this one. We could even go that far, and I wouldn't, but we could go that far. And yet the reality is that all of the tools in the box are needed. All of the tools in the box play a role and help in the accomplishment of the great work in the building of Zion. Now, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with this kind of mentality in mind. Here in Ephesians 4, Paul starts out, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... Beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I'm going to interject in here. One Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, Any who repent and come unto me are of my church. And one baptism, which the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the individual church, holds the keys for, holds the responsibility given to it by the Savior to be a guardian of those ordinances. Continuing, verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all, but unto every one of us, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of grace the gift of Christ sorry wherefore he saith when he ascendeth up on high he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men he's talking to everyone and it seems obvious here that the savior is speaking to everybody that we all have gifts we're all part of the body of Christ it seems he's speaking in this universalist manner again as we skip down verse 11 this is one we use in the church But maybe again, we've overreached. Verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Maybe he's given different people holding different positions to various communities of believers in order to bring people to a unifying of the faith. Now, yeah, I'll be frank. It certainly hasn't worked out too well. We all disagree with each other. We all get argumentative with each other. But the reality is, what we do, and what Christ has given us something to do with it, can absolutely be two different things. Till we all come to, in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to the perfect man, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we may even be, we may even be understanding that verse differently. It may be more of a concept, look, I'm giving you this stuff, and, and, you know, And you got all this till we come to a unity of the faith. You've got this. And we'll work on that later. We'll work on that unity thing later on. Right now, I just gotta get you guys on an individual level, just moving in the right direction. So I'm gonna give you these things. I mean, who knows? But certainly the scriptures give us room to kind of take on these different ideas. Mosiah chapter 18, verse 7. And it came to pass that after many days there were a goodly number gathered together at the place of Mormon to hear the words of Alma. Yea, all were gathered together that believed on his word to hear him. And he did teach them and did preach unto them repentance and redemption and faith on the Lord. He taught them the bare bone basics. And then it says, And it came to pass that he said unto them, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus were they called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, and be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in the of comfort, and to stand as a witness of God at all times, and in all things, and in all places, that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, What have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him that you have have entered into a covenant with him, that you will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you? Look, what is asked of us is what we will do, not what we will believe outside of the bare bone basics. It's what we'll do with those beliefs. Nowhere to say, hey guys, listen, I'm I'm sitting here writing on these metal plates, and what I need you to do is I need you to believe the story about Nephi, where where his brothers murmured. I need you to have a testimony of that. you got to have a testimony of that before I can baptize. No. He teaches them faith and repentance. He teaches them the atonement. And then he says, look, and if you're willing to take those concepts, and you're willing to serve your fellow man till the day you die, then what do you have against being baptized? Let's get her done. Again... It's a very inclusive idea of what the expectations are for baptism. Here's another one. This is in Mosiah chapter 25, starting in verse 21. Therefore, they did assemble themselves together in different bodies, being called churches, every church having their priest and their teachers, and every priest preaching the word according as it was delivered to him by the mouth of Alma. And thus, notwithstanding there being many churches, they were all one church, yea, even the church of God. For there was nothing preached in all the churches, except it were repentance and faith in God. That's the common denominator. That's the commonality between all these churches. They taught repentance and faith. And he continues, verse 23, And now there were seven churches in the land of Zarahemla, and it came to pass that whosoever were desirous to take upon them the name of Christ or of God, they did join the churches of God. Any who were willing to take upon the name of God did join the churches of God. And they were called the people of God. And the Lord did pour out His Spirit upon them, and they were blessed and prospered in the land. My argument would be that any who repent and come unto Christ, who are of His church, will prosper and be blessed in ways that the Lord only understands. And I think we agree with that. We see good people outside of our faith who are blessed and who prosper. How about when Jesus himself speaks in 3rd Nephi, chapter 18, verse 22 and 23, and behold, ye shall meet together oft. Ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together, but suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. But ye shall pray for them and shall not cast them out. And if it so be that they come unto you oft, you shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. Again, this idea that, look, don't cast anybody out. If they've got a little faith, if they they have a little belief in these basics, then let's keep them going. And yet the church seems to draw this line, the individual LDS church, seems to draw this line that you no longer have a testimony of this historical event. Oh, Sorry, got to let you go. And I think we've got to get past that. We have to move to this place where we just allow people to hold various views on historical events. And we say, look, what we're talking about here is faith in the Lord, repentance, ordinances, and, uh, and an understanding and belief of the atonement to the extent that it is, it is helping you in your life. And leave it at that. And I think the Book of Mormon speaks of that over and over and over again, especially when we consider the fact that the Book of Mormon is supposed to have the fullness of the gospel. Now think about what the Book of Mormon does not contain, and then think about what it does contain, and say that's the fullness of the gospel. And again, I'm not in any way saying ordinances aren't needed, that our church isn't true, that priesthood isn't part of of the church, that we don't have it. I'm not saying any of that, but I am saying that we have to redefine how we look at the word church and the way we look at the word gospel, and how we separate at times the way we use church and gospel as being two completely different terms that mean two completely different things. Again, 3 Nephi chapter 26, verse 21, And they who were baptized in the name of Jesus were called the Church of Christ. They who were baptized in the name of Jesus were called the Church of Christ. They, the people who were baptized in the name of Jesus, were called the Church of Christ. That is a very inclusive way of defining this. And there are lots of people throughout the world who have been baptized in the name of Christ. And they are called the Church of Christ. Fourth Nephi, verse 26, And they begin to be divided into classes, and they begin to build up churches unto themselves to get gain, and begin to deny the true Church of Christ. Could the Book of Mormon be speaking of the collective church here, rather than the individual? Is that possible? Let's begin to wrap up. Moroni chapter 7 Verse three, wherefore, I would speak unto you that are the of the church that are the peaceable followers of Christ and that have obtained sufficient hope by which you can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until you shall have rest with him in heaven. Think about that. I speak unto you that are of the church, the peaceable followers of Christ. Those who are of my church are the peaceable followers of Christ. Skipping down to verse 39, But behold, my beloved brethren, I judge better things of you, for I judge that ye have faith in Christ because of your meekness. For if ye have not faith in him, then ye are not fit to be numbered among the people of his church. Here's an exclusivity phrase. Here's a term that says, look, if you can't do this, you got to get out. And and what he sets is this idea that if ye have not faith in Christ, then ye are not fit to be numbered among the people of his church. What, what God sees, at least what his, what his prophets here saw as reason to push someone out of the church was that they no longer had faith or hope in Christ. That seems to me like a possible no-brainer. And even at that, I would still be, I would still be patient and want to work with this person over a long period of time and not just do it in the first week that they're having this, this faith shift away from the savior first corinthians chapter 12 there are these scriptures which talk about the gifts of the spirit given to various people doesn't say it's just you know in the church says you know one person gets a gift another person gets this gift others get that gift and then it says but all these worketh that one in the self-same spirit dividing to every man severally as he will every man keep that in mind For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Again, seems to be talking to all of us. But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need But God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer. He's not talking members of the church. He's talking about parts of the body, members of the body of Christ. Everyone. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ. It's not just Mormons reading this. It's all of Christianity and then some. And God wishes that every single person would read it and understand what he's speaking about. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. I think the savior is speaking unto all of his children in those verses. I don't think it's just Mormonism. So bear with me here about five more minutes. The body of Christ, personal application. Let me share with you five points. One, you are called to promote truth and unity. That is clear in the way that the Savior defines his collective church. Two, you are called to serve. You are called to serve those around you, both in and out of your faith denomination. You are called to serve your fellow man, to comfort those that stand in need of comfort, to mourn with those that mourn, and to be a witness of Christ. Number three, you are called to share Jesus. If you don't have a personal testimony of the Savior himself, then share his goodness, share his example, share his life, and the things that he taught, even if only allegorically. For those who have a firm testimony of the reality of the Christ, I join with you and say we must share the Savior. We are called to be missionaries of his name. Number four, you are called to worship. We are called to gather together with those who believe like us and to worship with them. We are called to partake of the bread and of the wine or the water. Number five, we are called to love each other. John 1, 4-11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May I conclude with two quotes from a lady by the name of Nadia Boltz Weber. Nadia Boltz Weber is a Lutheran minister. She is a minister at a church called the House for All Sinners and Saints. It's in Denver, Colorado. You can go to houseforall.org or you could look up Nadia, N-A-D-I-A, Bolz, B-O-L-Z, Weber, W-E-B-E-R. She's very much a, I would call a stage four and fowler. The church is really cool. If I lived in Denver, Colorado, I would certainly attend this once in a while just to take this in. Kind of sad that it's it's just too far away for me to do. But Nadia Bolz Weber, as the Lutheran minister for this church, the House for All Sinners and Saints... She was interviewed in Real Clear Politics in their website. They did an interview with her and posted uh, uh, the question and answers that they had. Real Clear Politics asked, said your friend, the religion writer and editor Phyllis Tickle, talks of the great emergence saying the church is in a period of grand upheaval and that seems to happen every 500 years. The early medieval monks rejecting imperial power the great schism between Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy, the Protestant Reformation, and now this postmodern turn. How do you see yourself and your church fitting into this emergence? And here's what Nadia Boltweber says. She says, That's why Phyllis and I do so much speaking together. She does these big, huge swaths of history and cultural theory, and then I get up and read a personal essay that demonstrates what she's saying, in a way, without it meaning to. What Phyllis consistently says is this, What is the locus of authority? That is the issue of post-modernity. That is the thing we are struggling with. When the Leila Elkhorn suicide happened with so many trans people in our community, I went to them and said, what do we do? And so they organized and got one of our members, Asher, to write a prayer. They put up a shrine, and we read it. And so it was the trans people who read the prayers of the people that day. And I said to them, do you want me as the clergy person to read the prayer that Asher wrote? Or do you think it's more important to have another trans person read it? And they talked to each other and they said, we want our clergy person to read the prayer. There's a lot of permission giving in our community. Boy, that's a different model of leadership and authority than we've seen in the church in a long time, maybe ever. They trust me. And these are people who are pretty suspicious of institutions and definitely suspicious of presumed authority. And I somehow have authority to them. And I think it's because I'm consistently, i consistently letting go of it asking for other voices, and unafraid to share leadership. I don't always get that right. Sometimes I hold on too tightly when I should be letting go, and sometimes I let go when I should be holding on more tightly. So I don't get it right all the time. But they know that there's no curtain that they have to peek behind. Consistently, when we've looked behind the curtain, we've always found scared little men and women, and we've never found the Wizard of Oz like we thought we would. House for All Sinners and Saints is filled with people who have issues with authority and who are cynical And yet I'm their pastor. They allow me to be their pastor. But they confer that title. They allow me to hold that office for them. On behalf of the whole community, I'm sort of set apart to have a particular office within the community. And they continually allow me to have that authority. It has nothing to do with my collar or my education or my ordination. It's that I'm consistently the same person in every situation they encounter me in. They never feel like they have to look behind the curtain. And when I'm full of crap or I make a mistake, I just say it. I spend zero energy defending or protecting my own authority. You know what that allows for? People to actually trust me. They know that I'm fallible, but that I'm transparent enough about it that they don't have to worry about it. It's not going to sneak up on them. She also was asked this. um, She said, would you consider yourself a universalist? Does everyone get saved in the end? And then Nadia says, she says, I confess that I am a Christocentric universalist. What that means to me is that whatever God was accomplishing, especially on the cross, that Christological event was for the restoration, redemption, reconciliation of all things and all people and all creation, everyone. Whatever God was getting done there, that is for everyone. How God manages to play that out through other religions, other symbol systems, I will never understand. I have to allow for the idea that God is actually nimble enough and powerful enough and creative enough to do that. Now that will never be my truth. I couldn't be Buddhist to save my life. God didn't come and get me through any other symbol system but this one. This is my truth. And this is where I sort of stake my claim in my life. And whatever God was up to at the cross, it has to be accomplished through means I'll never understand. How could it be limited to what I understand? That's so arrogant. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, may we recognize that both in and out of the church, God is accomplishing his work. That the church perhaps plays a very sacred, special role, but that it is only one small piece of the work. That others outside this church are part of it. That they are among its auxiliaries, as Brother Whitney said, that we are all part of the body of Christ. May we recognize that all who repent and come unto Christ are of his church, and that perhaps it is those who are true and living with which the Lord is well pleased. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.